value are you than the birds? And can any of you worrying about a single hour add a single hour to your span of life? If then you're not able to do so, small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms, Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Would you pray for me and with me? Bless, O Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. O Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. I don't remember when I did it, but I must have signed up for a TED Talk of the Week because it shows up in my email. And it says, you might be interested in this. It always strikes me a bit curious how folks know what would interest me on an app, so, but I do check it, just in case. And this week, a talk by Tammy Lowley came up, and its title was, Let's Get Honest About Our Money Problems. She basically says that she's breaking the rules, you know, you don't talk about money in the family. You certainly keep it secret and to yourself. But in 2006, her brother broke the rule and called her and in something of desperation said, Tam, I need $7,500. Can I borrow it? Now, this wasn't the first time he had needed some resources from her, but there was something about his voice that concerned her. He sounded more desperate. After a little conversation, they agreed to the terms, and she lent him. She did say, we've got to talk about this. As a financial counselor, she said, you got to get to the place in your life where you're not trying to keep up with the Joneses. Downsize your house and by golly, get rid of that five buck a day Starbucks coffee. 
they had gotten together with his wife and, and they were talking about this and it soon degenerated into this blaming conversation and, and she just wanted them to be grown-ups and she was frustrated between being a financial counselor and being a ticked-off sister. Well, she called her mother. <laughs> Not before he got her. Wouldn't you know? And, and he just said she was no help at all and that he felt shame and, and blame and, and it just wasn't helpful. Two months later, she got a phone call saying, Tam, I got bad news. Keith hung himself today. He left a beautiful 10-year-old girl, an 18-year-old student about to graduate from high school and a 20-year marriage. And she, she went to his home days later trying to figure it out. She was in his office and in the garage and she found stacks of credit cards that were overdue and they were going to foreclose on his mortgage. That arrived the day he took his life. She goes on to explain that somehow we get money tangled up with our self-worth. What we have or what we don't have. And she goes on to express that they, she believes that this financial mess grew out of and grows out of how we grow up. Her mother had been one of those people that said, if we just have more, we'll be happy. If we just get a little bit more, we'll be happier. Keith took that into his life and became someone who needed to be rescued. Tammy took it into her life and became a rescuer. But both of them had in common the belief that somehow their bank balance was equal to their self-worth. This is not a fun story. And yet our scripture lesson this morning tells us that 500 verses were spent on the power of prayer, 200 verses on the power of faith, and 2,000 talk about money. A third of Jesus' parables focus on the importance of money or its lack of security in our lives. That's how we get this one. A brother comes up and he wants Jesus to arbitrate with his brother over inheritance. Apparently, he's not being fair. And rather than address that, Jesus comes back and says, let me tell you a story. Be on your guard. Watch out. Greed has its problems. The story is about a man who, wealthy enough, has the great fortune of having filled his barns and coming back with a bumper crop in the new year, 
finding out that he's not got room to store it. So he ponders and ponders and says, I'll just tear these barns down and build me some bigger ones. The problem, though, is that he does not see himself in this parable. You see, there's a lot of the economy in that day that depends on farmers not only raising crops, but selling them and giving a portion to the poor in order that the community might thrive. Not only is he short-sighted about his spiritual well-being, but he's left the community barren. Money and security has taken the place of God in his life. And his retirement wish of let's just eat, drink, and be merry forgets about the rest of the story, which is for tomorrow we will die. Jesus calls him a fool. This is the only time in Scripture in which God is reported as having called anyone a fool for their lack of understanding. This parable reminds us that the rich farmer has built up all kinds of wealth except the kind that would change his life for eternity and the lives of those who are around him. By choosing to accumulate wealth instead of placing his whole heart and his life in God, he has literally cut himself off from well-being and from the only source of courage to be found in this vulnerable world. It reminds us today that wealth and worry are not adequate tools for living a life and our perspective right. A change in the way we see the world is required, not only around money, but if we can do it there, could we not find it everywhere else in our lives? Because God is necessary to help us determine a course, not only for the blessing of our lives, but that of the community. It's with a few casual but critical references to flowers and birds and sparrows that Jesus challenges us to shift our attention away from our worry about the future to witness the present that we're living in so that we might have a focus that makes the difference. As we go through the busyness and struggles of life, are we drowning in our worries and our fears? Both inside our hearts and outside in our world, is the stress that it's producing, our focus shifting away from the subtle yet constant and very real presence of a living God. Now, it's important this morning to understand that God, or excuse me, that Jesus is not condemning this man for having material possession or for success. He doesn't for a minute suggest that we can't make it 
without some kind of resource to feed ourselves and care for the world. What he condemns is that this man has invested his whole life to the detriment of his soul and to the detriment of others. No problem with wealth, but great wealth, peril and having wealth possess us. Kingdom living would demand that the rich man first acknowledge that his gifts have come from God alone, that this bumper crop was not his doing, but God's grace. He must define himself not by what he owns, but what he owns ends up defining him. So the problem is priority or focus. Any of us can see our face in this story because we've struggled with trying to figure out the balance between managing our words and our finances in life versus the treasures that we have and the peace that can be found in the spirit. If you're not struggling you're not breathing. Hospice workers report that the top five regrets most often expressed by persons on their deathbed is, one, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Translated, wish I'd spent more time with my family and my children. Number two, wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Relationships are the richness of life. Number three, wish I'd let myself be happier. Translated, wish I hadn't worried so much about the unimportant things. Number four, wish I'd had the courage to express my true self. In other words, the courage to have test what I was made of to see if I could make a difference to become all that God intended me to be. And number five, I wish I'd lived a life true to my dreams instead of what others expected of me. Translated, did I fill up this one spot got in this world in a way that makes a difference. So how do we get it right? Or at least, how do we evaluate it? How do we get to a place of true calm in this storm? How do we steady our lives when uncertainty is the norm? It's by facing our anxiety and our worry, by recognizing that uncertainty is the most certain thing that we're likely to have in this earthly life, and also to recognize that Jesus offers an assurance, the assurance that our empty treasure is exchanged by God's promise that it's his pleasure to care for us with the sensitivity and value of tiny birds and grasses that are gone tomorrow and the value placed on our heads. 
The kingdom isn't this earthbound, inward way of the barn guy, but the soaring, beautiful way of the one who lives and loves generously and with deep faith and joy. A shift in perspective allows us to lift our eyes up to the birds and out to the lilies of the field. If you are in the Embracing the Uncertain series in your life group or elsewhere, you have read this week the story of how we got the song, His Eyes on the Sparrow. In 1905, Sevilla and her husband moved to Elmira, New York, where they developed a relationship with a couple named Doolittle. They were absolute saints. They had been, Mr. Doolittle had been uh, handicapped his entire life and had wheeled himself to work every day in a wheelchair. Mrs. Doolittle, when they met her, had been bedridden for nearly 20 years. And yet the two of them had those kind of spirits that when you meet them, they just blessed you and they lifted your heart. On one of their visits, Mr. Martin said, What is it that makes you so filled with joy and hope in the midst of of lives that could be described as struggling and difficult at best? And Mrs. Doolittle said, his eye is on the sparrow. He watches me. This was for Sevilla Martin, the beginning of that hymn. Will the world know that this battle we call life is one in which we have life in abundance because of where our focus is? Because not setting our vision on Christ can and does rob us of the life that we have, of the gifts that we're given right in the midst of the struggle. We might be tempted today to wonder what the big deal is, but Jesus' parable illustrates what I understood at the end of her TED Talk. She said, change is difficult, but in my family, not changing was fatal. Isn't it important today to see in our lesson the context of which Jesus is offering it to us? This one chapter is loaded with stress. Just here, in the beginning, he talks about the Pharisees and how they're struggling with hypocrisy. He is Jewish, my friends. He wants his church family to get it together. Telling the disciples that their faithfulness just might cost them their lives. No small thing. He then goes to this parable declaring that the accumulation of stuff is futile and it's not going to ground you. 
then to reminding his listeners that not being vigilant about their faith could lead to judgment, reiterating that he's here to cause division, not peace. If you read that chapter, you're stressed. It's just the way the scripture's written. And yet, right in the middle of this long diatribe, we receive words of the dearest comfort. Did you hear me? Right in the middle, right in the midst. Look how God cares for the ravens and the lilies of the field. God knows when a sparrow falls, knows when you well enough to have counted the hair on your head or the lack thereof. De Vega suggests to us in this chapter, quote, this high altitude perspective where to see that the comfort of God isn't to transport us away from the darkness and the difficulty of this world, but to actually drill us more deeply into the midst of it. You see, that's how we learn to perceive God's presence and power in a new way. It creates a new way of seeing, a new way of living and loving and hoping. It's about interpreting the presence of God in the heat of the battle, in the middle of the struggle, where we turn away from treasures that corrupt toward a focus on the wholehearted love of God and neighbor. This just isn't stuff we share. In one of my commentaries this week, he says, not long ago I heard a woman had to put a tarp in her living room. Her roof was leaking, and so she couldn't get the roof fixed, but she'd put a tarp over her things in the living room, trying to protect them until something could be done. He used it as an illustration in his sermon. On the way out the door, a member asked him, what can we do to help this woman? And the pastor says, you know, it took me totally off guard. He wanted to say, I don't know, I was just preaching. <laughs> do we say this stuff and not mean it? Later that week, a check for the price of a new roof showed up in an envelope. A donor had taken down a barn so the kingdom of God could be made real. The kingdom is at stake here. Who and what will we trust? It's no mistake that at the end of our verses morning, this morning, it says, where are our hearts? Don't be afraid, little flock, for it's your father. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that don't wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
It's only in trusting in God and God's goodness toward us, recognizing that it's God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom that grounds us in an otherwise ungrounded existence. Who and what will we trust? Where is your heart? The invitation is to find it once again, to refocus and find it in God, because God is just as present in this moment as are our fears. Thanks be to God. Amen.